Hello, and welcome to the Purple Ivy podcast. My name is Tanis Bestland, a senior consultant here at Purple Ivy, a future-focused sustainability consultancy based in Stockholm, Sweden. In case you haven't heard of Purple Ivy before, let me take a moment to give you the elevator pitch. Our mission is to leverage our sustainability know-how, communication savvy, and management systems expertise to help our customers future-proof their business strategies and integrate sustainability into the company culture and corporate vision. Last week, we hosted an after-work event focused on sustainability in China and India that featured two great speakers with substantial insight into the business environment and sustainability agendas in those two countries, our very own Kaiying Lau and Martin Wright. Prior to joining Purple Ivy, Kaiying Lau was head of the Global Reporting Initiative in China. She has also been a consultant at APCO Worldwide, helping leading companies in China with their sustainability and communication strategies, government relations, and crisis management. Martin Wright is an award-winning journalist and editor who lived and worked in India for several years. He's written about sustainability topics for publications such as The Guardian, The Times, Newsweek, New Scientist, and The Times of India. He's also chaired corporate sustainability events in London, New York, Delhi, and Beijing. We had a great turnout for the event and received a lot of positive feedback afterward, so we've decided to share the recording for those of you who weren't able to be there in person. Without further ado, I give you Kaiying Lau and Martin Wright, in a discussion moderated by Purple Ivy co-founder Astrid von Schmeling. Let me first start with a little personal story, and this is this was September 2003, um, just before I was setting up my own company in Shanghai. I went through Hong Kong because my family uh, is from Hong Kong, and I sat down with a cousin of my father, and and my cousin's uh, my second cousin. Um, she was a businesswoman. She had a lot of business interests in China, actually. And she sat me down in a little office and sort of leaned forward, looked at me with very sad, you know, almost tears in her eyes, held my hand across the table and said, are you really sure you want to be in China? You can't trust these people. You know, they, they abduct people for no reason. They hurt them. They would cut your arm off just to get your watch from you rather than take it off. Uh, you know, I don't know if you really want to be there. So, and me being a good, you know, well-raised Chinese person, I did not oppose whatever she said. I just nodded nicely <laughs> and I, off I went into the plane. Um, and, and my story was actually couldn't be diff more different than, uh, than she actually painted it to me. Uh, and that sort of puts it in perspective of neighboring countries that have a lot of business interest in Ch mainland China that actually still don't really understand it as well, hmm. um, unless they actually have lived there. Um, so now back to the original question on, in terms of sustainability. Sustainable development is very much driven by the government's idea of not doing good or being morally right or whatever you call it, but it's really about how do we stay in power whatever it takes to stay in power, because we want to have a stable, you know, to, in order to stay in power, we need to have a stable uh, environment. And how do we get a stable environment is by having balanced growth, a harmonious society. So anything, when we talk about sustainability, in China, it's still called CSR. Um, it's all in relation to harmonious society, whatever it takes to stay in power. So that's, I think, very, very different from Europe or America or other markets. Mm. And Martin? And to some extent, India. Yeah. Uh, so one thing India and China would have in common is uh, the use of the phrase CSR, 
Um, and it's quite interesting because you can go to uh, a conference in India and talk to business people and they ask you what you're doing and you say, oh, well, I'm, I'm you know, working in sustainability and exploring how we can partner with Indian companies in sustainability. And they say, oh, yes, well, we're very sustainable. We love, we love sustainability. Um, and uh, as evidence of this, they talk about the chairman's wife's charity, which is uh, contributing regularly to uh, Kids for Tigers and has set up two girls' orphanages in the home village of the chairman and is running a, a hospital in a nearby, in a nearby state. Um, and you realize that sustainability uh, is used as a, um, a synonym for CSR, which in turn is used as a synonym for philanthropy. And the basic principle of philanthropy in India in the sense of the rich looking after the poor, the strong looking after the weak, is very powerful. And the, the Tatas, the Mahindras, the Godrejas, these big companies, they're almost taking the place of the Maharajas of old, if you like, and seeing themselves as having a responsibility to provide. But it's very much providing as a charitable gesture. Um, there was an act passed uh, two years ago, or passed three years ago, came into effect two years ago, the Companies Act in India, which um, flattered to deceive in the sense that it included within it something called the CSR 2% rule, which received quite a lot of positive media coverage in, in, in the West. Um, and the principle of that was that any company over a certain size <coughs> must um, spend 2% of its annual profits on CSR activities. And quite a lot of people from outside, sustainability people, thought this is brilliant. You know, the Indian government really getting behind CSR. And in fact, what it is for the most part is saying, well, you spend 2% of your profits on these sort of charities, setting up hospitals, etc., etc. There are a tight list of things that you can spend the money on. And what you can't spend the money on is making your business more sustainable, which if you come from a sort of a forum for the future perspective is exactly what you should be investing in, investing in making your whole company more sustainable, not just the 2% of your profits which come from, you know, any manner of polluting activities. Um, so um, a lot of people I knew who were working in sustainability in India, in CSR departments, this actually was a massive distraction to them because rather than think about, okay, let us see if we can do a bit better with, you know, in-house recycling or whatever they were struggling with, it was suddenly, oh God, how do we spend all this money that we've got to spend in a way that will be acceptable, acceptable to our board, that will be seen as we're doing the right kind of thing. Um, it's no surprise that one of the um, approved uses of the money was the Prime Minister's charity. So if you weren't sure what to do, you could always give the Prime Minister's charity and that would be okay. So, um, so CSR as philanthropy, um, strong, strong uh, feature of Indian life. Um, and the reason why sustainability hasn't gained as much traction as it has in the West, a couple of reasons. One is that companies are not under a huge amount of pressure to respond to it. They're, they're not having Indian consumers saying, you know, where do you source this from? Is this fair trade coffee? You know, um, they're also not under a lot of pressure in terms of resources because energy is cheap, water is cheap, materials are relatively cheap. So they're not having that kind of material squeeze that many other uh, companies elsewhere have, because partly because the government is subsidising 
um, these, uh, these key resources. Um, and also there isn't a, um, a rhetoric of sacrifice. There isn't a sort of a sense of guilt about consumption in India. You know, quite the contrary. Uh, India, you know, people rising up the, the social ladder, um, particularly in this caste-based society, one of the ways people can demonstrate that they're moving up is um, uh, profligate public consumption. And the story which illustrates this best is um, the story of the Tata Nano. So Tata, one of its uh, obviously branches, is a, a car company. And um, in the best Tata philanthropic traditions, the CEO of Tata, Ratan Tata, former CEO, um, some 10 years or so back, was absolutely determined that Tata should design a car that could be affordable for the arm admi, as it's called, the common man, it's always translated as rather sort of um, anachronistically, but for the ordinary person who got some money, not the poorest of the poor, not the bottom of the pyramid, but they designed this car so that the people who are currently riding around on scooters with mum, dad, three kids, a goat and some chickens all balanced on their scooter riding around through the dust so that they could afford a car. And this was marketed as the one lakh car. A lakh is an Indian word meaning 100,000. So it cost 100,000 rupees, uh, about um, uh, uh, 1,000 UK pounds, about whatever it is, 12,000 corona or so. Um, and this would be you know, a great social gesture. Um, and it completely bombed. And it bombed because all those people riding around on scooters, the last thing they wanted to do was to get into a car which had been so promoted as this is the cheapest car in India. What am I saying about myself if I can only afford the cheapest car? They'd much rather wait five years and carry on riding around the scooter and, and get a, a, a Suzuki Maruti or something like that. So there isn't the same sort of sense of, oh, personal responsibility, you know, must cut down, etc., etc. Um, and the government isn't really pushing companies hard on it. Uh, I know we're going to come on to the government more, but they've got the best laws, the best policies, There'll be a, a committee for everything under the sun, but the gap between, between law and enforcement is enormous. Mm. But, just briefly, but, but there's an opportunity agenda in there as well. Um, there's a lot going on in energy and renewables, particularly India's got massive potential in solar. There are people getting into that um, to meet local needs that are not being met by a sclerotic mains electricity grid. Um, and there are companies getting into designing products for the bottom of the pyramid. Um, people like Tata designing a, a water filter that's affordable for people so their children don't get sick. A lot of work by entrepreneurs on solar lighting and stuff like that. But Martin, we're going to get back to opportunities yeah, just a I'll little shut bit up later. Yeah. But I really <laughs> wanted to go and meander back to this whole discussion about the role of governments in China and in India, that they go from, okay, they're part of the problem to actually they're part of the yeah. solution. We saw that at Kong, for example. <coughs> well, mm. and, and I, I would say that in the 90s, when the whole sweatshop debate was going on with Nike and Adidas in China, it was actually seen as a trade barrier. You know, like all the Western companies wanting, trying to buy something and then you know, come up with all these kind of requirements that the products or the, you know, the workers should, should do or not do. You know, that's just you know, the West trying to sort of uh, you know, impose trade barriers on us, so make it harder for us to export and grow. Um, so, but the government has completely turned around because they saw now that you know, stability 
and the fact that uh, you know they have humongous amount of resource problems, you know, social instability, you know, inequality, and all that stuff, that they also realize that they're not able to do and provide their citizens with all the social welfare items that they need. That companies plus um, social, they call them not non-profit, but social organizations mm. that they need to pitch in to help the government to make everybody happy. Um, so then they saw it as an opportunity. You know, it's great if companies could be more responsible, take better care of the people <coughs> so we have less riots. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as simple as that. So if you would see at, at um, the, the drivers for companies doing um, um, sustainability or CSR work, is very much first the top-down push from the government I mean, since 2006 already, um, the Shenzhen Stock Exchange was a third stock exchange that actually required listed companies to provide environmental numbers, right, 2006. Uh, 2008, the state-owned supervision body required all the state-owned enterprises, so the national ones, there are about 100 plus uh, national ones, to write sustainability reports. Um, and since last year, they required them to actually implement uh, management systems, uh, CSR management systems. So there are a lot of things happening. And then under that layer, the national layer, you would have all these local initiatives of provincial and you have city municipality setting up um, CSR guidelines for companies. Um, and that's both from... Chinese companies, but also foreign companies, like for example the Pudong government, which is sort of the sort of the more industrial area of Shanghai, they have set CSR guidelines for the companies that are in their region. Are they enforced? Well, that's the, the second part. I mean, they're they're implemented, but there's not such a big penalty. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, they're not enforced. But actually, but. Chinese governments are doing something that Swedish, the Swedish government is also doing and has been known for, and that is inciting change through, through their state-owned companies. Mm-hmm. And since the number of state-owned companies in China is so huge, <coughs> that the impact is so much greater mm-hmm. as well of making change through enforcing that. And that's particularly relevant in anti-corruption. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a, a change, for example, when it comes to anti-corruption and how they see that, and is that for real? Is that changing companies right. for real? Well, that's, that's, that's still hard to say, but they're all now right, very nice and neatly, all their sustainability reports, mm-hmm. uh, some according to GRI guidelines, some according to their local guidelines. Um, but I think the important thing is, is that the fact that the government is pushing this is a sign for companies that are non-Chinese and they're doing business in China, that that's going to be one of the things that, that there should that should be on your minds because I expect a much larger um, a role within the government to push Western companies to do more, um, and then secondary expectation level is going to rise much more than it has. So I think we need to be very aware of that because the Chinese government is really pushing their own companies, but you know, that doesn't mean that foreign companies should, you know, lag. Mm-hmm. They should actually be even leaders. Yeah, and, and Martin, you've already told, told us about how it is now as far as the role of government today. How do you think that's going to evolve in the future? And what's, how is, is, is there going to be a change? Can we expect a change insight about, about how governments push the agenda? 
Yes, I think so. I mean, at the moment, it's schizophrenic. On the one hand, you've got the Indian government will take, will take refuge in its traditional position that um, we didn't cause environmental problems, the West caused environmental problems, the West should uh, clear it up and pay us money to do so. Um, and we've got to lift our people out of poverty first and then worry about the environment. And you, you have that argument. Now, there's a massive counter-argument against it, which is most things that help the poorest of the poor out of poverty also improve environmental performance, whether it's investing in clean cook stoves or in investing in solar lighting rather than kerosene, etc., etc. Um, so that, you know, the, the argument is based on a fallacy, but it's a persuasive argument. And I was uh, chairing something called the Delhi Sustainable Development Summit a year ago, uh, which is the main sort of sustainability conference in India. And there were two government ministers on successive platforms. And the first one, uh, Piyush Goyal, who's the Minister for Energy, and that both includes coal and renewables, interestingly enough, trotted out that line about, you know, this is not fundamentally our problem, you know, climate change is caused by the West. India is a poor country. Uh, it's not true. India is a very rich country with large numbers of poor people. There's a difference. But, um, and then the, uh, later in the afternoon, a chap called Suresh Prabhu, who's Minister of Railways, but also has a lot more influence than that title alone implies, he lambasted businesses who saw sustainability as a cost and said, this is the biggest single opportunity for Indian business this century. India is immensely well-placed. We have the IT expertise. We have the expertise in solar. Uh, we have an educated labor force who are quick to learn. You know, he, he gave a completely different agenda. And I think his agenda is starting to win out. And I think that's for three reasons, really. One is that people can see the opportunity. You know, particularly in renewables, and India's got this big lead in IT. They can see how they can get into smart grids and so on and so forth. Um, two is that there is starting to be the kind of pressure you're getting in China, particularly around air pollution. So you get well-heeled Delhiites, Dilliwallers as they're called, you know, coming out this winter being hardly able to breathe with levels of pollution much higher than those of Beijing. Um, and three is the, the sense that they can't play this, they can't ride these two horses. One, oh dear, we're a poor country. And on the other hand, we're going to be the second largest economy in the world in, what, 25 years' time? Um, that they have to start taking some responsibility. They look at the amount of carbon they're emitting, and they're right up there. I can't remember their number four now. Um, China's number one. I think India's yeah, three or four. Anyway, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. So there's a sense that, okay, maybe we can harness the opportunities in order to meet the sense of responsibility which we're just starting to own. Mm -hmm. So it's shifting. But if you talk to any Indian or talk to the average Indian <laughs> official right now, you'd get that tired old, you know, we lift our people out of poverty first and by the way, it was your fault. Mm. Yeah, and, and just to add on that, I think China has, has been in that position for mm. a very long time and that's why a lot of, you know, previous climate negotiation just utterly failed until Paris mm. because China started to see it as an opportunity because they're the number one uh, in renewables now as an as a investor and a producer. So, you know, there's money to be earned. Mm. Uh, you know, electric cars. You know, that's all yeah. these, these, these initiatives when it comes to sort of, you know, um, lowering carbon emissions and, you know, the protecting the environment, et cetera, et cetera, is, is, is seen now as an opportunity. And China helps lead India. So when China did that deal uh, with, the, with America in the autumn before COP, yeah. you know, um, 
and India completely jealous. took India by surprise. Yeah. And, you know, India is, sees itself as a rival to China, always trying to play catch-up with China. And it left India out in the cold, and it didn't want to be there. Mm. And that had definitely helped influence the more positive approach to COP by the mm. Indian government. Oh, that's great. That's great. What about the growing middle class? Everybody's talking about the growing middle class, particularly in emerging markets like China and like India, where we're focusing on right now. Um, Kayin, correct me with the statistics. I know somebody here is going to correct me with my statistics if I'm wrong. I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> One billion more uh, members of the middle class uh, between 2012 and 2020 in China. Well, my how, how will that in, how will sustainability help um, Western countries really have a foothold in these emerging markets and capture sort of opportunities with the growing middle class in these in these mm. markets? Well, first of all, I think you know the middle class in China is very engaged and concerned. You know, everything what they have experienced they experience directly food safety, you know, mm. pollution. Mm. Um, so and you know waters that that water scarcity they don't have water they don't have electricity when they need it so it's very direct um, so people are very much engaged and since the civil society in in China is not as you know as we know it here they don't have like and they don't have like a, a formalized system to file complaints they have but you know people don't trust the system uh, so that's different um, they find their outlet in social media. Right. Social media is, you know, you need to understand social media in China. If you don't understand it, you cannot do any business in China. Because if you don't understand the consumers, what they think, uh, what, they, what they see, uh, what they, you know, share amongst, um, amongst their, their peers. You know, a Boston consultant uh, group actually did a research not too long ago about how actually Chinese consumers are way more likely to engage with consumer brands through social media than their European and American counterparts. Right? That's, that's a big thing. Um, everything, they don't have an outlet because they don't trust newspapers because they're all government owned. Um, so the only thing they trust, you know, for, for good and bad reasons, you know, they, uh, they don't, they share everything through social media. They believe more what people say about social media than, um, than what is <coughs> said in, uh, in the news. Um, and just to give you an example of uh, you know, why it's so important to understand social media and not only to use social media to engage, but also to actually really understand the sentiment, what is happening on the ground, is uh, three years ago, um, there was the horse meat scandal, mm -hmm. right, about the meatballs, etc. And IKEA China, thought it would be a really good idea to sort of communicate quickly through social media about, don't worry, our meatballs, all our meatballs are sourced in China. <laughs> right? And then the next hour or so, it was just a whole, you know, bomb exploding of what? <laughs> we were eating Chinese meatballs? <laughs> I was expecting that when I would go to IKEA China to eat Swedish imported meatballs. Don't care if it's horse meat. Yeah, exactly. horse meat is fine. Yeah. They really wouldn't care less, but they wanted to have imported meat. Uh, so it's, you know, social media. 
key thing in China. Mm. And Martin, um, the growing middle class in India, we had quite a discussion about it this morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah again, uh, sort of countervailing trends. On the one hand, uh, as people get money, like the, my Tata Nano story, they want to be, they want to be seen to be consuming. Uh, secondly, they're moving into uh, urban areas, um, that's part of the process of the, of the uh, growing middle class. And so they're buying all kinds of consumer uh, white goods, durables, all kinds of stuff, which otherwise they, they wouldn't be buying in the countryside, partly because they, they wouldn't have enough electricity to, to run these things. Um, so on the one hand, from a purely sustainability point of view, you think, oh, yeah, this is a problem. On the other hand, fashion trickles down from the top in India very strongly. Um, and there is encouragingly a sense and it's a very sort of soft green a sort of soft green fashion so that you see green used in advertising far far more than you do in Europe mm -hmm. um, there are now organic veggie box deliveries going on in Delhi and in Mumbai um, there's uh, an enthusiasm for at least superficially for green stuff that starts to trickle down at least in the sense of creating the expectation that part of what marks you out as having arrived is that you have this enthusiasm for green stuff. Now, there's a huge gulf between that and actually people doing things differently. Mm. But it's sort of setting that kind of aspirational agenda is very important for it. And, and what uh, do you recommend a, West, a, a company like from Sweden that is entering the Indian market? What, what would you give them as a tip to really capture the interest and engagement of the Indian consumer? I think look to work in partnership with some of the bright, savvy, young entrepreneurs who are driving change. They're doing so particularly in energy. They're doing so in IT. They're, they're doing so in apps. They're surfing on the back of this fantastically rapid adoption of mobile phones in India. So there are, the, the, the famous statistic, which somebody would have heard, is that there are 1.2 billion Indians and 1.7 billion SIM cards. Almost anywhere I go in India, I get a phone signal. You know, I go 20 miles outside of London, I struggle to get a phone signal half the time. You know. So people in India will adopt new technology and will leverage it. And so farmers are using it to transfer money, they're using it to sell produce directly, cutting out the middlemen and so on. Um, and I, that's the area I think that's most profitable for engagement, because you're not going in and telling the Indians what to do. You're going in and saying, okay, these are the sharp guys who are part of the next wave. How can we most usefully work with them? Mm. Uh, and it might be simply applying, applying existing technical know-how to something that's now being enabled to happen on the ground in India, thanks to, say, the rapid adoption of mobile phones. Um, and the, the, the mobile is a really interesting thing because it is something which nobody saw coming from a traditional development perspective. Nobody, nobody rated adoption of mobile phones is something that would lift people out of poverty. But it's probably been the single most effective uh, development intervention and it's been delivered entirely by the market. Mm -hmm. Absolutely entirely by the market. Is it in local language or is it...? Yeah, both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And local language is. You can use English. You can use English, but, uh, but people have done apps for all manner of local languages, you know. Yeah. So it's not just sort of Hindi. Uh, it's also Marathi yeah, yeah. and it's also variants of, you know. But to reach the farmers, you need to do Yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And people, people use this stuff all the time, you know. It's, it's, um, yeah. So, yeah. So there's, there's, it's that, uh, the surprising ability, uh, the paradoxical ability of India as a very conservative country, I think one of the most conservative societies in the world, to 
absolutely turn on a sixpence, as we say in English, you know, to do a 180-degree turn to adopt something really rapidly is very interesting. And that can be leveraged for more sustainable business models. Mm, that's great. Um, I have one last question before we break in into sort of smaller groups. And, and that is something that I think that we're seeing a glimmer of today, but is only going to expand exponentially in the future. And, and that is the role that Indian and Chinese companies are going to have on the global agenda. Uh, we all know who owns <coughs> Volvo cars. We all know who owns uh, Land Jaguar Rover Land Rover. and Jaguar, for example. Do we? Uh, Out of interest? So Jaguar Land Rover were bought, you know, British firm originally, then, then passing through various hands, were bought by Tata uh, some years ago. And they've turned it round. They've made it profitable in a way that neither the British nor the Americans nor the Germans could manage. Hmm. And, and Chinese companies are certainly visible in Africa and Latin America, and they're making a mark on these emerging markets as well. Huge impact. Now, what can we expect for the sustainability agenda, and how do should Western companies... Um, learn from this emergence of Chinese and Indian companies on the global marketplace? And what can we expect about how the, the sustainability agenda will evolve? Mm. Well, China is big. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of different types of companies doing all kinds of different um, uh, things uh, abroad. But I think in the broad strokes, you could say that um, you know, there's a lot of export and overcapacity, uh, for example, in the steel industry and you know, in infrastructure that goes to sort of Africa and, and Latin America with all kinds of other corrupt, you know, governments, uh, you know, unstable uh, regions. Um, so in that sense, I don't think there will be anything happening there in sustainability. Um, um, and it actually it would almost digress because, you know, you, will hear, you are already hearing people in, in Africa, like in Nigeria, in Uganda, saying that, you know, I don't really want to work with these Chinese people because you know they are they, they had they gave us many promises, but in the end it's hard to work with them because they they only import everything. They don't really use local uh, sources. But couldn't it be also the other way around that they don't want to work with Western companies because Western companies have all these standards and compliance levels and all the rest of it to fulfill that the Chinese aren't really there and asking that same sort of level of expectations. <coughs> couldn't it be the other way around? No, I, th I, I think actually that Western companies don't want to be there because it's too unstable. Mm. It's the Chinese companies or, mm. that actually are willing mm. um, to do these high-risk uh, um, projects, uh, mainly because they are pushed by the government and the government is subsidizing them as, I don't know how much uh, to actually do that. Um, so... Um, now what's in it for the government? Why are they doing it? Well, they have... Is it power? Power basing? Well, there, power basing? yeah, so there are two things. One is um, about, you know, they have so much overcapacity uh, and there's going to be so many layoffs. And in order to sort of prevent that from happening, they sort of just export everything, mm -hmm. right? So all the steel and all the, you know, machines that they can't use in China, they can at least use it in, in Africa to lay roads and bridges. Um, and other thing is the soft soft power, yeah. right? The influence yeah. that they can get from these markets. They get control over the markets or the raw materials. Raw materials, raw materials, and then in the long run, hopefully, market. Mm -hmm. 
uh, but that's a very long long term game. Um, but the initial would be um, raw materials and being able to sort of influence when it comes to UN voting systems. You know, if they have all the mm. all these countries, mm. you know, in their pockets, mm. hopefully they'll be able to uh, have some more influence in international politics, uh, because they are sort of looking into. You know, they, they last ever since Xi Jinping got into power, he started the whole sort of the Chinese dream, uh, which basically means sort of the rejuvenation of sort of the great Chinese nation. So they feel that, you know, the great history that China has, they were always sort of, you know, a little bit on, under the surface and under the radar because they sort of felt like we're not ready yet to sort of present ourselves. And now they're like, they're becoming more self, self-secure, you know, have more self-confidence, you know, they are really doing some high-tech, high-end innovation now. You know, a lot of companies are, both foreign and Chinese companies are investing uh, a lot in research and development, you know, now they really can so show something. And they're much more assertive uh, in, on the political field. Um, and it will be, I think, very interesting to see how that, uh, how that sort of changes the power balance um, on an international level. Being Hong Kong Chinese, are you scared? <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I would like to call myself, I don't know even if that's, that's a word, but a positive realist. Um, I do think there is, you know, a lot of scary things that we could be scared of. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that, you know, the Chinese government or, you know, the people that are ruling really understand that they need to have some kind of fundamental change in the system, but they just don't know how because there's no road for them laid out of like, you know, if you're, you know, authoritarian state, you know, this is how you, you know, democratize or whatever it is, because they also not only looking at, you know, 1.3 billion people, you know, a huge amount of differences. You have Muslims living there, you have uh, Tibetans that want to be independent. You know, there's a lot of big, big issues in China that they're sort of trying to navigate. And in my humble opinion, I actually think that they have been managing quite well if you would rate them on, you know, if you're able to stay in power and if you've been able to sort of raise the stability level in China. They're not, they haven't done that bad of a job. But everybody is really afraid because they're, from an outside perspective, they act really irrational. Um, but if you are from within, they actually think about things and sort of trying to fix things and they're very pragmatic. They, I think the best thing is that they really can change from one end to the other if they realize that's not working. So next day they change it. And that erratic behavior is seen as, okay, Chinese don't know what they're doing, uh, which I, I disagree with. They know exactly what they're doing, but they but just try different things. As we said this morning, it, it's, there's a perception from outside that China is an immensely self-confident monolith mm. and the perception inside is is far from that isn't it right right you know, it's, mm. uh, they don't they don't see themselves as particularly powerful they don't see themselves no. particularly stable no mm. yeah they're, they're just trying to sort of trying to hold it together hold it yeah. together as much as possible yeah and martin yeah. will will indian companies impact the global sustainability corporate sustainability it, it's very interesting and it, it could go two way and just to just to uh, build on something kai Ying said briefly 
it is remarkable, the progress of China compared to the progress of India. If you looked at India and China in 1970, when China was in the throes of the Cultural Revolution, mm. and India was you know, a, a starting to be a booming-ish economy, spoke English, great resources, you know, um, the idea that in 40 years' time, China would be way ahead of India, people would have thought was utterly absurd, you know. So the, the, the progress of China in that sense is remarkable. Um, in terms of the Indian, uh, Indian companies, so you've got two things going on. Um, on, the, uh, on the one hand, you've got um, Indian businesses increasingly operating in Western markets, so having to respond to Western sustainability norms. So as Indian businesses get more successful at exporting, they run up against the kind of norms um, uh, you know, expected of your average major player in the West. Uh, the second thing you've got, obviously, is, as we talked about, Indian companies coming and taking over major Western companies. It happened a lot in the, the UK. The investment flows from India to the UK are much higher than the flows from the UK to India. Um, and, uh, and when that happens, they get exposed to the Western norms of sustainability in the companies they're taking over. Now, that, that's not necessarily a very comfortable process. Um, when Tata took over uh, Tetley, Tetley Tea, a major UK tea uh, distributor, um, they ended up stripping out the whole layer of sustainability uh, personnel in Tetley and relocating them all to India. And as a result of which, it took on a much more Indian sort of CSRE style um, you know, uh, approach. But it was quite interesting. It, further down the line, so you've got that sort of, the, the, the levels will sort of uh, tend to normalize around a sort of standard Western sustainability thing. But there's something else in that there, there is among some Indian companies and Tata Global Beverages who took over Tetley are very interesting in this respect. They have a take on what we would call social sustainability that is quite pioneering. So one thing that TGB, Tata Global Beverages, did was they uh, made a series of videos which were very clever, very funny videos on two broad themes. That's about a year ago. Under the slogan Jago Re, which means wake up in Hindi. Um, one was female empowerment and one was persuading people to register to vote and to persuade them that they could hold their local politicians to account. And they, they, they were very clever, funny, funny videos. They had a woman interviewing one of the big Bollywood stars and he agreed that every time he uh, appeared with a woman that her name would go above his on the credits. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, genuinely, they were signed up to it. And they had another one sort of showing a politician swanning into the village, local politicians sort of you know, handing out the the thousand rupee notes left, right and centre, you know, and, um, and expecting to be treated like a god. And then this teenager saying, just tell me why I should vote for you. You know, what do you mean why you should vote for me? And giving him a thousand rupees. No, I want to know why I should vote. Oh, no, I'm giving him another thousand rupees. And then the boy saying, no, what are you going to do for this village? And it was, it, it was very effective, got shared very widely on social media in India. Um, and it would just be interesting to see if, if eventually some of that quite um, campaigning uh, sort of social sustainability side, if you like a kind of modernization of traditional Indian philanthropy, mm. comes through and influences the West. 
And in a way, I hope it does, because it will introduce a new strand to it. Uh, this is a, a sort of an anecdote that I've, I heard from a friend of mine um, in regards to China. There's this major, major, major multinational that um, headquartered in Germany that did a materiality process. And they gathered together all their, their, their sustainability managers from around the world. They put them in a room and they were going to um, rank the issues that were of greatest importance or most relevant importance for the business and for their stakeholders. And the Chinese sustainability manager went up there and he put CSR and philanthropy right up there on top. And then everybody in Western Europe said, whoa, wait a minute, no, 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 how could you say that? And how could you say that's so important for the, for the business? And then um, the Chinese guy, he looked them in the eye and he said, my business or my, my sort of department or, or my, my sector represents 40% of your income. I think what I say in China <laughs> is kind of important to where we put materiality. And you couldn't say much about it. So, so I think that we as Western, we have to uh, accept the fact that things are going to move and, and, the, and the agenda is certainly going to be impacted by, mm. by um, countries that will have greater importance. And that's all for today, folks. Thank you for joining us. If you have any feedback for us, please get in touch. You can find our contact information on our website, which is www.purple-ivy.se.